Uh, There's a saying, it's not what you know that counts, but who you know. E.g., restaurants that are supposed to be booked out for normal people suddenly manage to find a spare table when a celebrity turns up without a booking. It's not what you know that counts. Uh, The Aussie version of it is something like jobs for the boys. Politicians manage to score cushy diplomatic positions uh, once they retire from their mates. For many of us, the Aussie sense of fair play, uh, it reeks of being unfair, doesn't it? Uh, We don't like people who push in, uh, people who get things they don't deserve. Uh, But there's another way of looking at that uh, saying, it's not what you know that counts but who you know. Imagine you've moved to a new country, you don't know anybody, you don't know the language, the culture, you don't know where things are found, you don't know where it's safe to live. What you need is to know someone, someone who knows all of those things, who's got the connections and the background and the information. When you're in a position like that, that's saying it's not what you know that counts but who you know, well it becomes a lifeline. It becomes a wonderful, positive expression of hope and survival. And so it's that sort of emphasis I want to bring to these couple of chapters of Genesis. Uh, It's not what you know, but who you know that counts. Firstly for Abraham, uh, for Abram, and then secondly for us. Uh, So we saw last week at the start of chapter 12 how, how God speaks to Abram. He's in Ur in another place. He commands him to go, to leave behind everything. Uh, But not only that, there are promises that go with the command. God promises him uh, many descendants, promises to look after him, to bless him. He promises to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. If you're going to move to another country, that's the sort of promise you want to hear. Having God on your side really makes that saying true, doesn't it? It's who you know that counts. Abraham trusts God's promise. He goes, he ends up in Canaan uh, where God had said, but when he arrives there's a problem. Uh, Verse 6, there's a no vacancy sign. It's uh, it's lit up because the land is already full. Uh, At that time the Canaanites were in the land. But God's still got it in control. Verse 7, he reassures Abram, uh, it's okay, your offspring, uh, to your offspring I will give the land. God promises Abram that he'll be a great nation and bless him and now he adds to it, he's going to get a land to live in as well. Abraham believes God, he builds an altar and worships God. That was last week. Now, those specifics might be different for us, but it is still pretty much the same call God gives to each one of us. He calls us to leave behind our old life, uh, those things that we get security from, and to step into a new life following Jesus, uh, trusting what he says, trusting his promises, trusting his direction. And so, in, in these verses, the start of chapter 12, it's, it's fairly obvious where to follow Abram's example. He gives us the model of what faith is. It's the pattern to copy. Hebrews 11 spends a good whack of time focusing in on Abram and uh, describing a whole lot of people who have faith and uh, 
Hebrews 11 verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. By faith Abraham, even though he was well past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And there's the important bit. If you're going to step out in faith, it means you consider God to be faithful. If you're going to trust him, it means you consider him trustworthy. Uh, He's worth trusting your future with and your finance and your plans and your family and your health. To trust him means to find him trustworthy. That's a step we take when we first become Christians. Yes, I consider you trustworthy, God. Uh, But we do it every day after as well. Every day we wake up and we say, today, once again, I'm going to count God as trustworthy. I'm going to step out in faith. I'm going to choose obedience over independence and disobedience. That's what faith is. And so at least in last week's verses, yes, we copy Abram. But we come to today's verses and, well, maybe the example's not quite so obvious. Uh, He is not uh, a model that is perfect. Uh, God's promises are threatened and Abram doesn't trust. Uh, He gives in to deception instead. Here's a story where we shouldn't follow Abram's example. So God has promised Abram the whole land but there's a a threat to that promise, There's there's a famine so Abram decides to head to Egypt. But before he gets there he comes up with a little story for Sarah to protect, not her, but to protect himself. Verse 11, we read, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you they'll say this is his wife. Then they'll kill me but let you live. Say you're my sister so that I'm treated well for your sake. Nice guy, really, isn't it? Throw your wife under the bus to protect your own skin. Well, is it a lie? Well, sort of. It's a half-truth. Chapter 20, we find out that Sarah's his half-sister. They've got the same dad, but different mum. So, you know, make your own mind up about that, whether it was a lie or not. But it's deceptive, because she is his wife. And he's prepared to lose her for the sake of saving his own neck. As we read on, Abram's worst fears are realised. Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's harem. Here's another way God's promises are under threat. God has promised Abram lots of descendants, but his wife is in Pharaoh's harem. There's not much chance of her bearing him children while she's there. Now, I'm not sure what Abram thinks about the trade. He does get to keep his life. He loses his wife for a little while. He gains plenty of sheep and cattle and donkeys. Uh, But that doesn't really sound like much compensation, I would have thought, for not having his wife. We don't know what Abram thinks, but we do know what God thinks about the arrangement. There in verse 17, Abram has made a mess of things, but God is going to move to set things right. Uh, Verse 17 tells us, The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household, because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Well, 
That's a bit of a wake-up call to Pharaoh. He realises something wrong and before long he works out what it is. He summoned Abram. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Uh, Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. He has more integrity than Abram himself. Uh, Abram goes back to the promised land, back to Canaan, uh, and yet God still stands by him. Why? Because, well, that's what God has promised to do. He's supposed to bring blessing to the nations and yet Abram, through his deceitfulness and lack of faith, is actually brought a curse down on Pharaoh's instead. So we've got one story where we should follow Abram, one story where we shouldn't. Well, next we come to chapter 13. We get a story where God's promises are under threat again. But this time Abram trusts God in the face of that threat. Has he learned? Maybe. He's back in Canaan. He and Lot have found some land among the Canaanites. By this stage there are lots of sheep and cattle. In fact, there is so much that there's overcrowding, there's a shortage of feed and water. Uh, The land couldn't support them, verse 6 tells us. There's quarrelling, verse 7. And so Abram, verse 8, comes to a solution. Uh, He says to Lot, you pick which direction, I will go in the other. I'm easy, it's your choice. It's a generous gesture, but it does seem like a threat to God's promises because what if Lot chooses the best land and leaves Abram with the scraps? The little nagging thought comes in, well, how is God going to make a great nation from rubbish like that? It's tempting to think that way. But it doesn't bother Abram. Perhaps he's learned something from the Pharaoh episode. Perhaps he's learned to trust God. Verse 10, Lot has a look around. He chooses the fertile river plain. Great for farming, great for grazing, can support a lot of people. And so verse 11, the two-part company, and we're told Abram lived in Canaan, which, by the sound of it, wasn't quite so lush for farming. Lot lived near Sodom. Abram was willing to let Lot choose first because he trusted God's promises. He let someone else choose because he trusted God's promises. And Jesus calls us to do the same. Are you willing... Uh, to put yourself last because you're trusting God's promises. Uh, Jesus said, Mark 9.35, if anyone wants to be first, if you want to be first in my kingdom, you must be last. You must be the servant of all. That is what puts you first for me. Uh, Sometimes when our family are walking towards the car, one of the kids will call out, shotgun, uh, meaning, I want to ride shotgun. I want the front seat. But then sometimes for a joke, one of them will say, Christian shotgun, which means I'll take the back seat. Now, jokes aside, that's actually what Jesus wants, isn't it? He wants us to always take the back seat. Are you willing to take the back seat because you trust God's promises that he'll provide? Are you willing to take the back seat at morning tea? Go to the back of the coffee line (laughs) to serve others and wait for everybody else. Are you willing to risk missing out? Are you willing to take the back seat 
by doing those messy and time-consuming jobs rather than the neat, controllable ones that you're able to do easily? Are you willing to take the back seat when it comes to receiving the credit and working in the background without being noticed because you're content with God's approval alone? Are you willing to take the back seat in generosity, giving and giving until you actually notice it? Most of us are so wealthy we don't notice giving money. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't make much of a difference. We don't do without. But what about being generous with time, with energy, with emotions? Take the back seat. Give so generously you run the risk of being taken advantage of. Are you willing to follow Abram's good example to take the back seat because you trust God's promises? Well, what do we do with Abram? It's a little confusing, isn't it? We've got two stories where Abram does the right thing and yes, follow him and one in between where he seems to get it badly wrong. Is Abram our model or not? Well, he is. But the thing to remember is it's really a chapter about God's promises rather than Abram's faith. It's about God's faithfulness, not necessarily Abram's faith. He is a human example, but he's human. He's not perfect. And I think that is the point. People change. People go through highs and lows. People are unreliable. But the one constant through Genesis are God's promises. They can be trusted. No matter how much we change, God stays the same. Yes, we should imitate Abram. He considered God faithful. He considered him trustworthy. It's not a measure about how perfect our faith is because there are times when we will doubt. But rather it's about how perfect the faithful one is. We can't trust ourselves but we can always trust God. Well that's chapter 13 where uh, Melba read for us but we're going to take a quick look at 14 because it gets back to this idea of... uh, It's who you know that's important. We've seen that Abram is someone it's important to know. God has said that whoever, that he will be a blessing. Whoever blesses him, God would bless. And whoever curses, God would curse. We see that sort of thing worked out in chapter 14. Now, we didn't read it. It's a story that's got a fair bit of confusing detail and can I say whoever volunteers to read this in home groups uh, got a mouthful of difficult names. Uh, but the plot is fairly simple. So let me summarise it for you. The kings around Sodom and Gomorrah have been paying tribute to another king, King Kedolema. He's the king of a place called Elam. It's protection money, basically. Twelve years of protection money gets pretty tiring, so they stop and they wait to see what happens. Well, before long... Uh, King Kedalema comes along with uh, his army and he starts a war. Sodom and Gomorrah lost. Uh, Kedalema loots the cities and takes whatever he could find, including, verse 12, Abram's nephew Lot and all of his possessions. And they head home. And Lot looks headed for a life of slavery. 
But remember, he's connected to Abram and Abram is someone worth knowing. And Abram comes to the rescue together with uh, 318 fighting men. It's a very specific number, isn't it? And they set off after Ketalema and his army. They catch them just north of Damascus, they defeat them, they recover everything, uh, including Lot and all of his things. This is not a bad uncle to have on your side. It's not a bad God who's blessing Lot through Abram either. Abram returns in triumph and two kings come out to meet him. Verse 17, there's one is the king of Sodom, the other is the king of Salem or Jerusalem. His name's Melchizedek. We're just going to zoom in on Melchizedek for a moment. He actually gets highlighted in the book of Hebrews. Verse 18 of Genesis 14 reads, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now that's pretty much all we know about Melchizedek. He's a mysterious figure in the Bible. Somehow he's a follower of the true God, just like Abram. But what's more, if Abram is important to know, then Melchizedek must be even more important. You see, he blesses Abram. That's a sign that he is the one above. He's the one doing the blessing. Then Abraham goes and gives him a tribute gift, another sign that Melchizedek is more important than Abram. The writer to the Hebrews pushes this even further and he says that Melchizedek is someone who actually points us to Jesus, that Melchizedek is a copy or a shadow or a taste of the sort of man, the sort of ministry that Jesus would have that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's what he describes in Hebrews 7. He says, think about his name, King of Righteousness. That's like Jesus. Then there's his job. He's a priest, just like Jesus, and a king. And he's the king of Salem, which is Jewish, which is Hebrew for peace, shalom. He's the king of peace. Once again, that's, that's Jesus. And he goes on to list a number of other comparisons as well. But, but here's the big point. If Abram, if Abram bowed down to Melchizedek and if Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, well then that makes Jesus greater than any other priest before or since. Greater than any other representative before God. And here's why Hebrews 7, verse 23, concludes this way. There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike the other high priests. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. 
He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. That's the sort of man that you really want to know. Better than Abram, better than Melchizedek, someone who is really worth imitating, far more important than those guys, more important than someone who can rescue you from a foreign king or present you with a herd of goats. Jesus can actually represent you before God. He can save you from the judgement you deserve. He can intercede for you, speak up for you. Now that's a person you really need to be connected to. That's someone about whom it really is true. It's not what you know that counts, but who you know. And that's Jesus. Make sure you know him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories of Abram. Uh, They're interesting, they're challenging, they they make us realise something about Abram was just a man like us, a fallible man, and yet he trusted you. Uh, Lord, help us to do the same, help us to trust you. Uh, We thank you too for this little uh, hint of Jesus here from Melchizedek, uh, the one who was the Prince of Righteousness, who was a king and a priest, uh, a one about whom we know so little and yet who points us to Jesus. Lord, we thank you that our brokenness and faltering steps are not ultimately what matters but it is the faithfulness, the reliability of Jesus himself. We thank you that he is the one that we know. We pray that we might live for his honour and glory. Amen.